In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today is the first Sunday of the Coptic month of Baba, and we read from the Gospel of St. Mark, the account of the paralytic who was brought by his four friends into the presence of Christ to be healed of his physical paralysis. And there is this exchange that takes place between Christ and the people and the scribes who are reasoning in their hearts, the, the scripture says, regarding his words to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven you. And I think the story is very familiar to all of us. Um, it's one of those beautiful stories, not only uh, in terms of it being a wonderful miracle of our Lord, but also because it shows the, uh, the power of Christ as the true physician of our souls, not just the physician of our bodies. And the story, the, the account of the gospel this morning is really about one thing. It's about the problem of sin. It's really not about physical paralysis or physical healing, but Christ wants to make it clear to the paralytic himself, first and foremost, and to all who are listening, and of course by extension to all of us, that the real problem in humanity is not physical illness, but it is spiritual illness, which is sin. And this is really the main point of all of his miracles. The miracles, in a sense, are just metaphors. The physical miracles are simply metaphors of the greater miracles that Christ came to bring to the world as the incarnate God, as the son of the living God who came to enlighten the world with the knowledge of God and to bring renewal, restoration, redemption, salvation, and eternal life to all of us. So when he heals a blind man or he casts out demon from a demon possessed or when he raises from the dead a man who has been dead four days in the tomb, all along he is redirecting us to our spiritual enlightenment and resurrection. And the physical ailments like today's paralytic are reminders to us that we don't have the power to fix ourselves. We don't have the power to heal ourselves. The problem of the human condition cannot be solved from within ourselves. We are in need of someone outside of us to redeem us, to save us, to raise us up. And again, this is the simple message of the gospel today. The paralysis of the heart is much more dangerous than the paralysis of the body. Many of us, we will spend most of our life worrying about the various physical insecurities or ailments or trials that we face. But Christ always wants to redirect us to the most dangerous ailment of humanity, which if we don't pay attention to has eternal consequences, which is the paralysis of the heart. In verse five of the, of the gospel this morning, Christ says to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. In that very short verse, there is so much there. Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the commentators who are experts in the Greek tell us that Christ here is speaking in the present tense. He's not saying God has forgiven you. He's saying that in this very moment, your sins are being wiped away, are being forgiven. And this is very important because Christ wants it to be very clear to the paralytic and to all those who are listening 
that when Christ is present, when Christ is manifest, he is the power of God redeeming, reshaping, renewing our humanity. So he's saying to the very power of God which renews you and heals you is my presence at this very moment. And at the same time, he begins by saying, what, son, son. I imagine that nothing can be more beautiful that on the, at the moment that we close our eyes from this world, that the words that we hear from our Lord to us is my son, my daughter. And so the healing of the paralytic begins with this initial confirmation. You are my son. You are not just something that I created and left to its own demise, to its own destruction, or to eternal destruction, but you are my child. That affirmation is already the healing of our souls. Our renewal is already taking place by that simple affirmation that God speaks to us as his sons and daughters. And then he says to um, his opposition, he says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk, arise and take up your bed and walk? It's a very interesting question because they speak to two aspects of God's work, creation and redemption. When God created man out of the dust, and then when he came to renew him in his own image, to restore him, to save him, to redeem him. The two great works of creation and redemption. And Christ says to, 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 to his opposers, he says, what is easier? But that you may know that I am the redeemer, but let me show you first that I am the creator. So that you might believe that I am the power of God in your presence, forgiving sins, atoning for your sins, let me first show you that I am also the creator. So he says very simply, with just a word to a man who has been paralyzed, get up and walk. Just as I created you from the dust, I restore your body perfectly, in a moment, by just my word. So he is the creator and the redeemer, and he reveals himself as such to those who are there. But what I want sort of to kind of focus the rest of our time on is this great mystery of the forgiveness of sins. There's something that's very sort of interesting in, in, in the reading this morning. Christ says to his listeners and to us, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your bed or rise up and walk. Why does he call himself in this instance the Son of Man? Wouldn't it have been more convincing if he said, but that you may know that I am the Son of God, or that you may know that I came forth from the Father and the Father and I are one? But why does he say that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins? And this opens up a wonderful door for us to walk through. 
Because Christ here is speaking about the power that he leaves on earth through his church. St. Cyril in the fourth century, he said, but to whom does he refer when he says this, the son of man? To whom does he refer? Himself only or to us too? He says both the one and the other are true. For he forgives sins as the incarnate God, the Lord of the law, we too have received from him this splendid and most admirable grace. He has crowned human nature with this great honor. Also having said to his holy disciples and apostles, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So when Christ says that the power has been given to the son of man, and then later he turns to his apostles and breathes into them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. He's reminding them that this power is given to man. This, this blessing, this grace, this healing presence of Christ remains with us through the church, through the sacraments, through the priesthood. This is not a small thing. This is, this is the essence of the establishment of Christ's church, that he is still present in his church, albeit sacramentally through the presence of his priests and all of the clergy and through the sacraments of the bread and the wine and the water and the oil. And all of these means, Christ is using them to be the manifestation of his continued presence among us. But just like it was necessary to see through the flesh of Christ that he was the incarnate God, that he was the Son of God, because he looked exactly like any other man and behaved like another man, and that he ate and drank and slept like other men, in the same way it requires the same faith for us to look at the altar, to look at the sacraments of the church, to look at the sacrament of confession at the hands of the priests with faith, to see that Christ is working, not because of the goodness of the bread or the goodness of the water or God forbid, forbid the goodness of another human being, but because he wants to continue his presence through the, in the church through these means. So I want us just to talk a little bit about confession. This last week in our Orthodox and Catholic uh, book club that we have with some of the nearby churches, I encourage you to participate. It's open to everybody. It's once a month, usually the second Tuesday of every month. We, we read a very uh, wonderful book by Metro Metropolitan Anthony Bloom called Coming Closer to Christ. Metropolitan Anthony Bloom was a very well-known Russian Orthodox bishop who reposed in the early 21st century it was perhaps one of the, the greatest sort of modern spiritual fathers and writers of the 20th and, 19th, uh, 20th and 21st centuries. Um, and he's written many wonderful books that maybe some of you are familiar with, like Beginning to Pray and so on. And, and this book is a collection of sort of his uh, sermons and talks about the mystery of repentance and confession. And so in that study, there are a number of beautiful stories I just want to share with you that sort of bring out some important points for us. The first thing I want to say is that confession is about freedom. Repentance and confession is about freedom. When Adam sinned, 
the Lord called to him in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? Of course, could it be that God didn't know where Adam was, who had just created him just before that? And again, he asked him another question. Did you eat of the tree? Could it be that God didn't know that Adam ate of the tree? So what is, what is taking place is, is God is saying to Adam, sin has made you go into isolation. The shame of your faults have caused you to shrink away from me. Come out. Expose yourself. Come out of your isolation. Again, very shortly thereafter, in the, in the fourth chapter of Genesis, in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. Uh, sorry, Abel k- killed his brother Cain. And God, God called to Cain and asked him, Cain, where is your brother Abel? Again, did he not know where he was or what had happened? Again, God, God is asking these questions in order to bring us out of our isolation. So Metropolitan Anthony, in, in one of his talks, he, he said, Years ago, visiting one of the London prisons, I heard a statement made by one of the prisoners that impressed me very much. He said to me, you do not know what a relief it is to be found out, to be found out. Metropolitan Anthony said, we discussed this matter at some length because I wanted to understand and I wanted to see what he meant by it's a relief to be found out. One day, this man who was a thief was caught. And he says there was a great feeling of shame, of distress, and then a sense of liberation. Now I have no need to hide who I am, or rather who I was. There is no need to be hypocritical, to be what I am not. I can now become whatever I choose. I can either remain a thief, in which case there are ways in which I can behave well enough in prison to get out soon enough to go back to my job, having learned a great deal from my fellow inmates, or else I can choose to change and start anew. This sense of relief and of joy and the liberation at being found out as I feel, Metropolitan Anthony says, almost completely absent from our ordinary lives. We try so hard never to be found, never to be found out. We try not to be found out as sinners with regard to one another, and we try not to be found out with regard to God as well. So the immediate sort of reaction when we sin is to hide in shame from one another. It distances us from one another, and it certainly distances us from God. Not because God has distanced himself, but because we, like Adam, have gone into hiding. We have covered ourselves with our shame. And so the very possibility that we come to the church through the mystery of repentance and confession and to unload all of our burden in the presence of Christ in the sacrament is an opportunity for us to come out of our isolation, to come out of our shame, to begin again anew. And that's why repentance is always about the looking forward. It's, never, it's not about the past. Repentance is not about just focusing on what I did, but repentance is about allowing me to move forward. It's about allowing me to, again, renew my path ahead of me. It's like Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. 
Christ wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And he wept because he saw what death and sin had done to humanity. And the tomb is like this maybe perfect image of this isolation. What can be more lonely, more isolating than to be buried underground and rotting? What could separate me more from life itself than the decomposition of my, of my flesh under the ground or in a tomb? And so Christ weeps at the, at the isolation of man through death. And he, in his tears, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Come forth from your isolation. Come forth from what sin and death have done to you and come to life. But the, as I said in the beginning, this faith requires us to look past the priest, the human person, and to look at Christ who is present. Again, very beautifully, Metropolitan Anthony, he says, I remember once going to confession to a priest who was not an ordered man. He drank desperately. He was despised. He came to church drunk. This is a real encounter. This is a real story that Metropolitan himself experienced. A priest who was an alcoholic, a drunk. He said he was so drunk at the services that he couldn't even celebrate the services. He says, on one occasion, I put him in the corner of the church and stood in front of him in case he fell so that he would fall on my back and not in front of the whole congregation. Only later did I discover why he had come to such a low point in his life. This man, this priest, was a young officer in what was called the White Army against the, the Red Army of the Soviet Rev Revolution. And he was on one ship and his wife and children were on another ship and the ship that his wife and children were on was bombed and sunk in front of his eyes. So he saw his wife and his children die drowned in the sea. So he started to have a sense of compassion for why this man had gotten to this point in his life. And he was telling this story to another person. Metropolitan Anthony was telling the story to another person who was, seemed to be very cold-hearted. And he, this other person said, well, why did he start drinking? Job didn't drink. He repented or he prayed to God, but he didn't drink. And Job suffered so much. Metropolitan Anthony says, God forbid that kind of reaction. God forbid that we have that kind of cold reaction to one's suffering. But he goes on to say, but as for this priest, this drunkard, I went to confession to him. What kind of faith does it require for us to go to confession to somebody we know to be at such a low point in his life? But he went to confession to this priest. He said, I made my confession and the priest stood over me crying, not drunk in tears, but tears of real compassion. This priest was crying tears of compassion over this young man who would later become Metropolitan Anthony. And he goes on to say, and when I had finished my confession, he said to me, you know who and what I am, and I am unworthy of hearing your confession, and I should not give you any word of advice, but I will tell you one thing. You are still young. Struggle not to become what I have become. Struggle to not to become what I have become. Not to fall as low as I have fallen. 
That was the only advice he could give to him. And then he gave him a passage from the gospel to read, and he sent him with the absolution. And he said, forgive me for not being able to give you any better advice. Metropolitan Anthony says, this is the greatest advice I ever heard in my life. Not because of the passage of the gospel that he gave me, but because of the way in which this man spoke with his humility and his tears. So the impact was the work of Christ, not the righteousness of the priest. Again, forgive me for sharing so many stories, but another very beautiful story about, again, the work of Christ apart from the limitations of the priest. Metropolitan Anthony says there are occasions when the priest knows he can do nothing to help someone, but only God can help. He says, I will tell you another story, which I will never, ever forget my whole life. More than 50 years ago, when I came to this country, he was living in London at the time, a young woman came to me and said, I want to talk to you. I belong to a believing family. I remember, most of his congregation were Russians who came out of uh, the Russian revolution, and many of them were atheists. So she said, I belong to a believing family. I am sent to receive communion on Easter every year. And I believe neither in God, nor in the church, nor in Holy Communion, nor in any such thing. And I can no longer face the betrayal of my own self when I come to communion and receive communion, believing that it represents nothing to me. What should I do? And he said, I said, let us meet and talk about it. She came the next week during Lent on a Friday, and he said, I proved to be incapable of helping her at all. On Good Friday, she came again, and I said to her in shame and with deep pain in my heart, I have been able to do nothing for you. If God doesn't help you, I don't know. And then he had this idea, let us go to the chapel. And let us kneel before the icon of Christ in the tomb and pray for his advice. So he, he, was, he said, I can't help you. I don't know how to help you. Only God can help you. Let's go and pray. And this we did. I knelt down and I prayed to God and I said, Metropolitan Anthony said in his prayer, he said to God, I have nothing to say. I have nothing to give this girl. She needs salvation and yet I cannot give her anything. Open the door to her. Do something. And then I kept quiet and silent and desperate and a thought came to me. I turned to her and said, does it matter to you whether you find God or not? Or is it a matter of indifference? So this thought came to him to ask her this question. Does it matter to you if you find God or not, or does it not matter to you? She said to me, it matters. For if God does not exist, life has no meaning, and I don't want to live. What should I do? And he said, I don't know. And I went on asking God and asking God, and then another thought came to me. He said, more frightening than the first thought. I turned to her and I said, if you promise to do whatever I tell you in God's name, I promise you that you will find your way to him. Very bold thing to say. She said, I do promise. What should I do? He said, I don't know. I went on begging and begging. And then a third thought came to me, even more frightening than the last two. And I turned to her and I said, tomorrow morning, Saturday of Holy Week, I will be celebrating the Divine Liturgy. You come to communion, 
and before you receive communion, stand before the holy chalice and say, Lord, your church has betrayed me, your priests have betrayed me, my family has betrayed me, and you also, I come now to you, I will receive communion as I am told, but if you do not act, I renounce you once and forever. She said, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can do that because I will answer for your blasphemy before God. And she came and she did that. She stood before the holy chalice. She said those frightening words and then received communion. He said, a few days later, I received a note from her saying, I do not know yet whether God exists or not, but what I know for sure is that what I received was neither bread nor wine, but something else I can't identify. And he said that was the beginning of her conversion, of a deep and lasting change in her life that blossomed into a life of faith and holiness. So again, it is by the work of God in the mysteries, not the human presence of the priest or even the other material things. So when we come in repentance and confession, we're sort of excavating from our soul, you know, this beautiful image of an archaeologist when he excavates, he first removes the dirt on the surface and then he finds some objects and he removes them and deeper he finds more objects and he keeps removing the dirt until he arrives at the foundation of what he's searching for. And it's the same thing with our repentance and our confession. And it's so important that we do this work because again, Metropolitan Anthony says, you know, somebody comes to him and says, I am prone to anger. And oftentimes we, we have these sort of, we come to confession and we say, oh, I, I suffer from pride. Good. But he says, he asks this person, okay, on what kind of occasions provoke your anger? What kind of people? And he says, you'll discover that there are certain people, no matter what they do, you won't get angry with them. And there are other people, no matter what they don't do to upset you, you're angry with them. So the problem is not anger. See, there's a difference. There might be somebody who gave the example of a nun who said that when she was younger, the church warden, was every time he saw her when she was younger, would uh, you know, treat her very badly and curse at her. And, uh, and she tried everything she could to please this man and she went to him and said, am I doing something to upset you? Am I doing something to anger you? He said, it's just enough to look at your face and I want to kill you. Something like that. In other words, the problem is not just anger. It is in the person. It's a question of many other things that we have to discover about our love and about our weaknesses. The final thing I want to say is carrying our sins and our weaknesses is a cross. And sometimes, like in the stories that we found or we shared together, sometimes these things remain with us. We carry them with us throughout our life, and they become a tremendous pain and burden in us. But Metropolitan Anthony, he said that he remembers the saying of one of the uh, Russian saints where he talks about that carrying our cross also includes carrying the cross of our sins, that is, the inability to overcome our sins, is also in itself a cross. But he says this is not the cross of Christ, because Christ was not a sinner. But this is the cross, what he calls, of the good thief. 
So he says, now, no one can live without sin. He's quoting here this, this other Russian saint. He says, no one can live without sin. Few know how to repent in such a way that their sins are washed as white as fleece. But there is one thing which we can all do. When we can neither avoid sin nor repent truly, we can, need, we can then bear the burden of sin. Bear it patiently. Bear it with pain. Bear it without doing anything to avoid the pain and the agony of it. Bear it as one would bear a cross, not Christ's cross, not the cross of true discipleship, but the cross of the thief who was crucified next to him. Didn't the thief say to his companion, who was blaspheming the Lord, we are enduring because we have committed crimes. He endures sinlessly. And it is to him because he had accepted the punishment, the pain, the agony, the consequences, indeed of the evil that he had committed, of being the man that he was, that Christ said, thou shalt be with me today in paradise. So at this very moment, this thief was carrying within himself all of his sins, all of his weaknesses, all of his crimes, all that was wrong in his life. And in that state, Christ said to him, thou shalt be with me today in paradise. Because he accepted it, and he bore it, and he took responsibility for it. So even if we do not have success over our weaknesses and our sins, let us at least carry the cross of the good thief, so that also he might say to us, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, and glory be to God forever. Amen.